This episode of the Business Samurai Podcast is brought to you by Lamar Marie Popcorn. You can get now one bag and get a second bag for half off with the code BARKER at checkout. So if you like your snacks a little sweet, a little salty, a little mixture of both, go check out LamarMarie.com and all of the flavors that they have for your next snacking sensation. That is LamarMarie.com with code BARKER at checkout for buy one, get one, half off. Welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I'm your host, John Barker. As a lifelong collector, it is privilege that I have Alex Winter, the president of Hakes Americana and Collectibles Auction House. Alex got his start collecting comic books at the age of eight. He started working for Hakes in 1985 as shipping assistant, working his way through the ranks to become president in 2014. Hakes was founded in 1967 by Ted Hake and became the first auction house to specialize in 20th century cultural artifacts. Hake specializes in political memorabilia, rare and unique toys of the 20th century, comic books, original art, rare sports memorabilia, items from TVs, movies, and music. In 2004, the founder, Ted Hakes, sold the company to Steve Jeppe, a longtime collaborating partner and owner of Diamond Comic Distributors, which I actually believe may be the only uh, comic distributor left in the United States, to my knowledge, among several other companies he owns. Some big-ticket items that Hakes has sold include Captain America's screen-use shield from Avengers Infinity War for over $250,000, a pair of Mickey and Minnie dolls for over $150,000, and in their most recent auction that closed March 16th, 2022, about a week or so from uh, recording this, a Boba Fett Star Wars prototype figure that closed at over $204,000, which is insane. Alex, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm excited to talk to you about collecting today. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. That's quite a build-up, so I hope we can live up to that. Oh, you yeah, there. Absolutely. Let's get back. You, and you obviously to work in, in, in a collecting industry, I think you have to have some interest in it. So go back. You, you started out at comic books, but you personally, what are you collecting into now? So a little bit of everything, and I'll give you the trajectory of, of where things went. First of all, as a kid, I took great care of my stuff. I saved the boxes and the packaging, and my mom encouraged me to do that, right? To play with them, but don't ruin things. So I was born a collector that way. Comic books were certainly my first love. But when I started to read them, they were hand-me-down comics, and I just had them as a kid. It wasn't really collecting, it was just procuring. Mm. And then in 1980, I went into a bookstore, and on the rack was New Teen Titans number one. So I was already a comic fan, and now I saw a first issue, and something just clicked, and I said, I've got to come back next month for number two. Mm. two. Now a lifelong fan of comics in general. And not long after that, then I started doing flea markets and local co-ops co and things, looking for comic books, but I would find a Batman lunchbox and a Superman game and 7-Eleven Marvel Slurpee cups and all of this kind of stuff that was related. And again, being a collector, I just started to buy this stuff. And at that time, I was helping out a guy named Dick Stegemeyer who got me on the path of collectibles as a career, helping him at toy shows and his booths at, at flea markets and so forth. And he was the shipping manager at Hakes. So in 1985, I officially joined the staff at 16, uh, 37 years later, my one and only job. <laughs> but along that way, Hakes has always been about offering something for everyone. Nothing was off limits if it was historic pop culture collectible. So I would see pinback buttons, I would see original art, I would see all this other stuff, autographs, concert posters, and just started buying whatever I liked. There were some collections that were much 
more expansive. And then there were some collections I had just a few things of, but, but I liked them. So that's, and as you can see behind me, is what it is. It's now a hodgepodge of 40 plus years in this industry <laughs> in total. And the things that I really like and enjoy, and as we talked before we started here, also sports cards. And there, there's very little that hasn't crossed my path that I haven't added something to my collection, even if it's just one piece. There's just so much stuff that I like, and I unfortunately feel the need that I have to have it all, right? That's a, that's a collector. <laughs> I was going to say, I think there's... So for anybody that doesn't know me on the intimate level, I've been in, again, collect mostly Chicago Bulls basketball, and that has evolved over time because I, I grew up during the Michael Jordan era, of course. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, even when I'm not from Chicago, but grew up on WGN, Always a Bulls fan, always diehard basketball fan, appointment viewing, uh, no matter what the game it was. So I grew up in there, and that evolved into Superman. I've got little pictures of me as a little kid dressed up as Superman. And that so when the Bulls theme had ran out, I transitioned into Superman stuff, mostly, partially because I like flying, but also because of some of the sentiment behind the character and what the character stands for is something personally, I believe. But there's absolutely an addictive nature to it. So with you, with uh, your collecting and how other people collect, you're, you don't have a singular focus as far as I, th I think. Primary focus, okay, I didn't even touch on that, is, is uh, music. Okay. So also, in, in listening to radio as a kid, fine. Was into Kiss in the late 70s, but more as them being a superhero themselves, right? I didn't have, I didn't own their music. I was a little too young to buy music. But in 1980, again, with the new Teen Titans, Back in Black comes out and changes my life. So I bought that. And then for the next couple of years, all I did was listen to everything ACDC, but I bought everything that they had and everything new that came out. And then finally broke out of that and started to listen to other bands. And in 1985, I got my first turntable and that's about 6,000 records later. Okay, wow. uh, and and just as many CDs, and I have reel to reel and eight tracks. So my biggest collection is music, and one of the reasons is I listen to music all day long keeps me going. That's what I bleed, but also it's a collection that I can use. So I don't just look at it; I can pull at any second a record off the shelf and actually play it. So all of that adds up to it being my favorite of all my collections. But again, I, I just branch out it, and it, one. Thing I have is this from Salem, Massachusetts, early 1900s celluloid match safe with a witch on it. I like Halloween. It just was a neat piece. So I have nothing else like that in my collection, but that I do because I liked it. So I'm a little different in that I'm as broad as I. Many collectors are much more focused yes. like you when you were just Spools or Superman. And Superman can be, I just collect the comic books or I just collect the action figures or I just right. paper memorabilia from the 40s, the premiums and so forth. So a collector can be as focused as you want or it can be as wide-ranging as you want. And that's what keeps it fun and exciting in that there are limitless possibilities in what you can collect. And that also goes to value, right? You don't have a lot of disposable income. Right now, all you're seeing is a million-dollar comic and card, and that's out of range for most people. You can buy lots of comics and cards and everything in any price point. And then just be happy with that. You know, a, a master collection as it suits your needs and your means. No, I agree. And one of the things, because I am part of a, a, a few groups. Matter of fact, uh, Zach Curtis is maybe, if he is not the world's premier Superman collector, he's got to be in the top three in, in my mind. I've actually been to Ohio and have seen his collection in person. And it's every, I mean, he bought the estate of Kirk Allen. And for anybody that's listening to this, Kirk Allen was the very first actor to portray Superman in live action in the movie serials. 
And so I've seen his collection firsthand, and that's how I got turned on to Hake. So he's very much a, I would say he's got a volume collection of older and vintage memorabilia, toys, and games. But I also see the other side of the ones, the part where I think the addictive nature can be a, in trouble at some times, is when everybody goes and buys something that just has the logo stamped on everything. And so when you've got a character that's like Superman or Batman or Star Wars, and it's legitimately just smashed on every piece of paper, every piece of clothing at the dollar store. And then I see people focusing in on, <laughs> I see people focusing in and go, Hey, look what I got. I got 25 chocolate bars and they all had the Superman logo on there. And I'm like, great. What are you going to do with that? Right. And so I, I sometimes think that it's like, okay. That's where an addictive nature kind of comes into. And I don't know if that's something that is just inherent to everybody, but I do see that is pretty prevalent out there as well. And, and look, it's not everybody, right? For many years, for decades, I had to explain to everybody what I did. I would carry a catalog along with me to show them in the 80s and 90s <laughs> because they didn't get it, right? They didn't understand. They understood. They heard people collect coins or fine art, but this other stuff, it was new. It wasn't new to the collectors of Disneyana and comics and so forth. They were doing it in the 60s and 70s, but it wasn't as as widespread, wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now in that every website, every TV show, that collectors, collectibles, all of this stuff is in our mindset. Now when you say, I work at a collectibles auction house, okay, they know what you're talking about. So it, it took a long time to get to the point where it is now, and, and much of that has to do with the values of things, right? As values have risen, then you have places like ESPN covering when a card sale happens. Well, that didn't happen yeah. decades ago, they didn't no. care. So again, it's great for the collecting industry that it, it's has the exposure that it does, um, but it also reveals to the, the true nature of, of some collectors in that we're obsessive. So one yeah. isn't enough. And I'm not talking about just one one Superman item. I'm even saying I, I know collectors that have five and six copies of the same book or the same item. It's, yep. it's Then it crosses over into a hoarder territory. So there's a fine line between collecting and, and hoarding, and you just have to, I can't pick and choose what makes you happy and if you have a significant other, make sure that they're okay with what you're doing too, because that can become an issue. No, absolutely. I, I would periodically get my wife go, what are you going to do or put with that? Because there's a point, like I said, I've, I've seen those, those volume collectors, because I used to get, probably like you, when somebody knows you're interested in something, it can make it easy if somebody wants to get you a gift at your birthday or Christmas or something like that. Hey, you like records, I'm gonna go get you some records. Uh -huh. And in, in my case, particularly when you've got something that's relatively mainstream now, it's still ongoing, the Bulls obviously still play and you get a bunch of stuff that I, I went through, I call it the purge. Everything that you know was just that, I hesitate to use the term junk stuff, but the dollar store item type of things. It's I gotta, and then you stick it all together in a couple bins. I'm like, yeah. what are you yeah. gonna do it? This stuff's gotta go. Like I need to make this stuff go away. And then I have a mindset again, having a bunch of stuff from the, the 40s and 50s with Superman in particular, where I go, hey, these things to me have a little bit of a historical con, con you know, content to it. And I'm trying to preserve these things from my, from my vantage point. I, I don't necessarily, we talked about this in the email before. It's not that I'm not aware of what something may cost or the, if something now has a value risen to it, but that's not the main driver for it. I look at something going, I'm trying to preserve this piece of American history in a certain way of something that I identify with and, and enjoy. But are you seeing now, and something I've seen with COVID in particular with big auctions and this price is spiking and cards selling like crazy, 
that people aren't necessarily collecting for the love of collecting or love for uh, a particular property, but because they may have more cash or may have more you know assets are really purchasing these things thinking they're going to turn this around in a year or two with a 25, 50%, 100% return on investment versus the, what I consider that, that collector's mindset. Yeah. Well, one thing you said that's very important is you said awareness of value, right? There's never been a collector in, in history that didn't buy something and know it has some value, intrinsic value, but also monetary. And price guys have been around for decades. Overstreet started in it's 1969, 1970. So collectors have always been aware that there's a value to things and it can increase. But that's never been the driving force. It's great if we find something for a bargain and we know it's worth more. And it's nice to see your collection increase in value over the years. But that's a collector's main thing is I have it, I'm holding it, I've got it on my walls, my shelves, whatever. That shifted uh, in the last number of years as collectibles have become commodity. We, and we have to look at it that, that way. It's just a, a, a realistic thing these days. Much of it has to do with the grading companies. So coins, again, were always looked at as something of value and investment. It's still a collectible in, in many ways. It's a historical artifact, but it's now encapsulated and it's got a grade on it. So that's when the big price jump happened on everything. You saw that in cards. You saw that happen in comics. Action figures. Stores have been selling for many years. We sold our first Star Wars item in 1985 before anybody knew what Star Wars was going to be a, a collectible, right? <laughs> now you see the price they're getting because these yep. things are encapsulated. So collectors buying it for the item what is in that case for sentimental reasons, for whatever, reclaiming their, their childhood. They just like the character, the film, the card, whatever. Investors, so say the nostalgia. I wonder nostalgia. if there's a nostalgia piece. Nostalgia. Yeah, for sure. Investors are buying that tag that says 9.0, 9.5, 10.0, okay? They may not know who Mickey Mantle is. They may never have seen Star Wars. They may never have read a comic book. I don't come from collecting from that standpoint you know, but that's me. But the reality is that there are many people, investors, that are now getting into this, and they are seeing big returns on their items so far. Now, again, you can't predict the future, and I can say two words, Beanie Babies. Yeah. Way at the top, and now look at it. So if you're coming at it from an investment standpoint, just beware. Hakes will never say, buy this, it's going to be worth X. We will say, buy what you love, what you buy. That's the collector mentality. But yes, especially since COVID hit and people were at home with nothing to do, they couldn't leave their house. We have seen dramatic increase in the number of bidders and dramatic increase in prices across the board. And I'm talking about one area. I'm talking about all areas of collecting. Much of this has to do with collectors who do have more money or time to enhance their collection. But at the same time, this industry is infused with a whole new group of investors who are spending uh, whatever they want on these items, much of it based on what they perceive it to be one day. It's reality these days with collectibles. Yeah, no, and I share a couple stories with this. Again, I have been, oh man, I've been collecting Chicago Bulls stuff since the early 90s, of course. And a buddy of mine runs a sports car shop, and I met him when I was 14, and he, st he still has it to this day. And he hit me up last summer and he said, hey, man, if there's anything you wanted to get rid of, of your Jordan collection, because I, he goes, now's the time. He goes, because I've got, 
I had parsed everything down to where I've got signed. I've got signed jerseys that are framed. I've got. I had a, some basketball cards, but for the most part, the bulk stuff I'd gotten rid of. But I've got a whole shoeboxes that were literally just. And I'm going to hold one up for anybody just listen to the audio of Michael Jordan. I know how you know. There's Beckett's out there. There's online price guys that are out there. So I flip through there and say, is there anything I actually want to get rid of because I had so many of them. And to me, what I saw, I, I came across two cards. This is actually the second one I haven't done anything with yet. I couldn't figure out what was driving the price up. And I consider myself being, having been in the community, talked to other people that collect all the time, I could not figure out there was nothing special. There's nothing special about this Michael Jordan card I'm holding up. It is not limited. It is maybe an it's a insert to something, but there's no number, there's no jersey, there's no signature, it's just a card. And I cannot figure out what makes this card go from something I got out of a pack for two bucks that should be a $20 card that I could go throw this online and sell it for $400. I sold one last summer that, I kid you not, if I was just going, I want to go buy a Michael Jordan card, which I've not done in years, and flip through a bunch of them, I sold one last year for 800 bucks that I would have passed over. That's how plain Jane it was. And I can't make heads or tails of what's happening in the market space other than people think they're just in, they're investing for the, they're buying things for the sake of the investment and don't really know what they're buying. Correct. And, and the Jordan is a great example. And, and look at his Fleer rookie. That took a meteoric rise over yes. COVID. I mean, talk about a card that was stagnant for decades in the gym at dollars $30,000 range. COVID hits, the ESPN special comes on, it goes up to two to $300,000. That's a tremendous increase in a very small amount of time. End of 2019, middle of 2020. Beginning of, of 2021, it hit $700,000 multiple times at auction. And now it's come back and it's two or 300,000, still way above what it was pre-COVID, but you can see giant ups and downs. So you're gonna have that. There are plenty of other things that have kept going up. Nothing has come down. But talking about not being plentiful, this was a mass produced card. This wasn't a one of one, yeah. but it is Michael Jordan. There's star one of one is, is the rookie, but everybody wants right. the sticker card. It's the one I want. I actually don't have, I got the sticker card. I got the rookie sticker. I don't have it, the real it's, one. It's like a man, everybody wants 52 tops. 51 right. Bowman's is rookie, you want 52 tops. But that's the card. So then when you have lots of people that want that card, even though it's, I won't say plentiful, but there's enough on the market, right? Th that's gonna drive the price up. And, and right now there's still a lot of people who want that card and even more so now the LeBrons and Luka Doncic and all these one of ones. And you're seeing extraordinary prices on those and, and where it goes, who knows? Uh, could it keep going up? Sure. Could it go down? Sure. So again, if you're a collector, just stay within your means. If you're an investor, then yeah. do what you want, but, Frost, but beware. Yeah. Sure. Well, and that's why I guess that again, going back to what I experienced last year when I was going through stuff and saying, "Oh, what's this stuff going for?" I forgot I had a Jim Mint ten, a Jordan. It was a Coca Cola card from UNC. There was a set. They're they're ten cent cards. They were super mass produced. I happened to have a Jim Mint ten graded that must have came in a box with a piece of jersey oh. on there that he played in. Fifty bucks was the going price. This random insert card that I, I do not know what makes it special or and the one that I sold, I'm just going, it's just everything seemed out of whack. 
to me yeah. as far as the as far as the collecting goes because i'm concerned about their getting into that really over what was the the company's over mass producing everything sure. in those early 90s and you can still go buy <laughs> unopened wax boxes of 1991 tops and upper deck and fleer skybox, uh, and, skybox yeah. yes I, I was there i was there trust me i was there at the time and that's what really got me out of card collecting it was there was so much and there were all these chase cards and all this stuff that, that now everybody wants, but back then we all got burned out on it. I remember chasing after Dikembe with set up 10 cards. <laughs> ridiculous prices just to get that. A Billy Owens autograph card. I paid like $150 at a show, and that was a big deal at this York show. Now sell this Billy Owens signed card. So you have that of, you, you just have to watch. And again, for me as a collector, I just buy what I like. So it wasn't about the value. It was about me completing these sets. And to your point, who knows what someone wants. If one card that one item at all that, that really wasn't looked at favorably sells for a big price then everyone's going to line up for the next one just because of that price not again not from a collector standpoint but now we're talking about this looks like a good investment it was here now it's here and where could it go do you think the the grading companies have helped or hurt the industry and with subjectivity and, and i'll give you an example I want to say, uh, the buddy of mine that owns the sports car shop, I, I want to say it was a Unitas rookie. I can't remember what it was, but it was you're a high end and he sent it off to be graded by, I forget which one it was. It comes back. He thought the grade was too low. They gave him a six and a half. He goes, if I send this back in and spend a hundred bucks and it comes back even at a half a point higher, that makes the price of this go up another thousand dollars that I can go sell it for. And it was all subjective on whoever received the item in, puts it through whatever their process is. And he comes back and he actually gets it another point higher after he sent it a second time. So I don't know if that's, if I like it from the protection standpoint, I got with me right here. It's a Superman number. It's a night. Obviously you're talking 1940s comic. I like it in the protective. This came from Hakes. This is actually a Hakes auction. I got the, the sticker on the back. I like the protection of a 1940s comic because I don't want it to deteriorate, but I don't know from the collector standpoint, people sitting there chasing out. This is only a one and a half because the cover has been ripped off that people are chasing these grades and keep sending things off. And then you get subjectivity out of it. If it helps or hurts. So there's no right or wrong. You're going to get 50% like, 50% don't. From an auction standpoint, it makes it much easier for us that we remove ourselves from that grading. And we don't have to worry about someone then second-guessing or questioning what we graded this at. They may not like the grade. They may think it's higher or low of the third-party grading company, but they don't complain to us about that. That's They take that online then, right? Complain on message boards. Sure. <laughs> um, but I think it's a good thing exactly from your standpoint is, again, even as a collector, I'm buying these things. And I don't want them to be in lower grade than when I bought them. So having them encapsulated like this certainly helps. The biggest thing encapsulation has done is, again, raise the prices on things. So we could have a, a comic that we call fine and we could have a CGC comic that they call <laughs> fine. There could be a huge difference in price. And obviously, third party is the reason why. It's always going to bring more. We remove our, just like uh, autograph authentication. We used to do that all ourselves. Okay. And then there were lots of questions. We've removed ourselves. Does everybody like every authentication company for autographs? No. Is it a good alternative to separate the auction house, the seller, the buyer? Absolutely. You can spout negatives about any third party authentication or grading, but in the end, it really is better for the industry, in my opinion, as a collector and as an auction house. 
No, you did touch on something that I think is good is the authenticity of an item when you send it to some of those things. I definitely have looked at that with autographs that I have purchased in the past, gotten burned a couple times, as well as being able to get the validity that something is true. But I want to pivot to, we've talked about our personal collecting history and what we think of the state of the market, but actually about Hakes itself. You guys do, it's just, I know you have little small auctions because I can't remember, if, I think this the comic that I've got sitting next to me that I showed was from one of the big ones that you do, but that's just three times a year, correct? And then a little couple Right small now, we're doing three premier cataloged auctions of Marvel categories. Um, then we'll do about six online only auctions in between uh, that are more themed. One will be sports memorabilia, one will be comic books, a comic and action figure one coming up. We are going to start doing smaller cataloged auctions. And we're going to start with Star Wars in a couple of months because we have that much material and that much higher end material. So the lesser value stuff, we tend to just do the online auctions. It's quicker, easier. We don't have a high print cost for the catalog and postage. So those we make our premier events three times a year. But you will see other catalog auctions coming up throughout the year as well. No, and I want to tell anybody that's listening or happen to be watching this, I, it's, I don't like having an overhead camera flip through. I enjoy, I've been getting this catalog for years, and even though I'm very narrow focused, I thoroughly enjoy flipping through every page of this. There's history, particularly when you're talking, most of the catalogs start out with the uh, the political category. So you see buttons from old election campaigns. You've had stuff from George Washington on there. I think sure. some Abraham Saint Lincoln signed letters. Like I said, it's, there's, it's American history built in, baked into this. And I know they say print is dead, <laughs> but this catalog is fantastic. And I look forward to every year or every auction getting through it. And I legitimately flip through every single page in there just because I like looking at the historical stuff in there. And I think other people would, you know, that, that are not seen you are. That. And, and there's a lot of time and effort that goes into that catalog. Okay. But again, uh, while I would like to get rid of it from a cost standpoint, right? No it, doubt. It, it's tangible. <laughs> so again, we're dealing with, with, customers, collectors that want tangible objects. I didn't, I didn't help your argument. Trust me, the, the owner of the company, Steve, is the same way. He loves a catalog, right? So yeah. it's just that's how it is. And a great selling tool, too. We can yeah. say, look at this catalog. We will treat your items uh, properly. And, and one thing that stems from is we've done 20-some price guides and reference books, right? So we are historians as much as we are an auction house and sellers of these items. So when we catalog an item, we do it from the mindset of how we do things in price guides and properly present it, give it the right photos, give it the right description, put the bidder, bidder's mind at ease that they're going to get exactly what they are seeing in the catalog or online or, or wherever. So we take great time and great pride in making sure that as far as we're concerned, we get it right on these items. So talking about auction houses in general, what how would you characterize the difference if I've got my Superman graded 1.5, I'm ready to part with it, of having you guys sell it versus throwing it up on eBay or something like that? What's the key differentiator from the business perspective? Number one, we take all the work and headaches away from you, right? You want to deal with eBay? Okay. I can give you a whole list of things you're going to have to deal with. So I've done that in the past with smaller stuff, but and there's a massive worldwide audience on eBay, but there's also millions of items at any one time. So what we do, especially in the premier auctions is 
we used to curate that auction. So I was ask. Yeah. we personally make sure there's not what we feel too much of anything. It doesn't do justice to the bidder who then has too many choices and what do they do? Certainly doesn't do justice to the consigner who then competes against someone else's items. So we walk a fine line. We have two very different sets of clientele. A bidder wants to get the item as cheap as possible. A consigner wants to get the most they can for that item. How do we make them both happy? You don't. You, you, you try as best as you can. But from that standpoint, again, the, the, the catalog is just so critical in conveying the message of here's the items that we had to present at this time to you. You don't get that with eBay. You're scrolling, scrolling. We organize it uh, on our website. We have everything categorized. We make it as easy as possible for consumer to decide what they really want and then they, they go after it. And again, a, a minimal fee, as far as I'm concerned, for all the work that we do versus what you're gonna pay on eBay and do all the work. And auction houses in general, won't just say, hey, essentially every auction house has the same clientele, give or take, right? So you can go to any auction house and if you've got the right item, you're gonna get the right price. Any given day could fluctuate a little bit, but what we take to heart at Hakes is that we make sure we do everything we can for the consigner to make them happy and at the same time, we make sure that whoever wins that item is going to be happy with that as well in the end. So we take great pride, great time in what we think is presenting things better than any other auction house. That's, you know, up for debate. I'm biased. At the same time, though, nobody can, <laughs> thank you. And, but nobody can stay on it longer. That's one thing we can say. 1967, yeah. we are the first collectibles auction house. So with the items that you receive in you talked about curating them is there a period do you have a year cut off particularly for newer items i will say where you go a because i if you flip through the back you start getting into the action figures the graded stuff because these are things from my childhood where i go hey i used to have that when i was 10. i got i see the transformers and the gi joes and, and stuff like that in there is there do you have a cutoff on the new stuff where you go hey we're not ready to bring this in here yet this isn't aged enough or this is not popular enough it used to be that way decades ago. It did take a, a bit of time for somebody to want that item back in, in their life, in their collection, whatever. Nowadays, no, with the cards, right? You can have a, a pack of cards and here's a hot, we'll sell that now. New comic books off of the rack, there's all these variants that are happening. Uh, yeah. So so no, there's no time frame. It's more of what are the collectors looking for? Okay. For the most part, it is vintage. I mean, I say vintage, even now I'm, I'm talking at least 10 years old, but, but 20, 30. I, I laugh. I, I again, mentioning Zach again, I, I've been to his little personal auctions and, and he'll go, Hey, this is vintage. It's 1995. And I'm like, I'm older than that. Does it? There's so much stuff being produced that is new, but even yeah. a couple of years old, you can call it vintage. So no, we don't discriminate against anything as long as it has some kind of collector value. Now the vast majority of the new stuff being produced, it does not. It's overproduced. It's mass produced. Sure. But there's still, like I said, limited edition cards and these variants. And so there's no time frame. It's really a matter of do we have customers? And if so, then we have to learn it, right? Just like a Pokemon, video games. There, there are things that are in the here and now that just a few years ago, we certainly was not in our vocabulary. And now it must be because people are asking for that. Now that you said that, I can't recall seeing the, I know graded video games now is a hot thing, particularly Nintendo and stuff like that. I don't recall seeing those in the magazines or not enough at a volume that I, it jumps out at the, in my right. recollection. Yeah, not in the last, we had some in the one before that. Again, the, the thing that we try to do is offer what we have at any given time, right? So sometimes it's 
going to be more comics than it is cards or vice versa or political we always have 500 items because we have so much in-house in the main catalogs anyway it is we never go with a mindset of we have to have these items it's just let's look at what we have what's the best and let's put those into that catalog auction or one of the online's or whatever we, we, again we take a lot of time and effort into making sure that we don't overload anyone at any given time and from what I saw, from from a valuation standpoint, for it to be worth you guys to even list it in there, I think I've seen minimum bids are never below a hundred bucks. Currently, yes, years and years ago, it should be five dollars was a minimum. Sure, but yes, now for the catalog auction, it should have an opening bid of a hundred. Value code then estimate is two to four hundred. So we're hoping nothing sells for below two hundred that goes in the catalog auction, and we're certainly moving towards increasing that as well as the cost of catalog and just overhead goes up sure. but that's what makes the online auctions so great and i don't want it to sound like the online auctions are just lower end stuff we have some really good pieces in all of those auctions oh. maybe we have two or three of the same exact thing and a consigner doesn't wait the three or four month period between the premier auctions we can now slot it in anywhere and it will do what it should do so Again, it's a balance of how much do we have Star Wars. That's one reason why we're going to have some in an upcoming April-May auction and then a June auction of just Star Wars and then more in July. We have that much stuff right now. And as you saw in the last auction, the prices that things brought, now is the time to be putting that out on the market. I, I laugh a little bit because one of the things I'm staring at on the screen right now, I was actually able to win it at the opening auction bid, <laughs> and which is actually – I'll tell you, this is my tactic when I'm tracking something on your website. I go on there the first day and throw just the opening bid and whatever the low thing is just so I get the alerts later on. And I had forgot. <laughs> and I'm standing there about an hour before. I'm like, I want to win that. Sorry for, again, going back to your analogy. Sorry for whoever just sold that to me, but I was pretty, <laughs> I was actually pretty heavy. <laughs> you know, consigners have to look at the broad picture, too, in that every auction, no matter who it is, the biggest auctions in the world, there's going to be some things that are light and that yeah. some things are going to set record prices and there are going to be plenty of stuff right down the line. So you got to kind of balance it out of high, low, medium. And and look, not a, some things sell at the opening bid and, and that's okay. Again, you're happy you got it to that price. We have a customer oh, yeah. that's ready to come <laughs> back and yeah. So You're getting an email later. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, do you have people searching you out and say, hey, this is what I collect. I'm looking for these items ahead of time for you guys to go hunt Absolutely. stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, we do. And, and again, that plays into what we offer sometimes. Uh, we may have something that we think is better for an upcoming auction, and we have some people that are looking for it, and then we'll put it into the next upcoming auction. So, yeah, we, have constant, we constantly have people asking us, do we have this? Many times we don't, but we'll say, I don't know what's going to show up today or tomorrow, so it could. And yeah, they are very mindful of what people are looking for, and we seek that out for them as well. Okay. I imagine you probably have relationships then with other people, other large collections, because there, there are people, for if people aren't aware, there are certain, I know comics in, in particular, where you've got a very high-end collector. Their collection is actually called the named person. This is the comic collection from them, and every single one of those things is completely vetted. And I've seen it, I think, with artwork as well. With yeah, pedigree is a big thing in the, yeah, in the, the pedig industry. pedigree. I couldn't think of the Whether term. Whether it's, yeah. you know, sometimes you can get a third-party grader to put that on the label yeah. if it's uh, established, known, uh, a big name. And then there are other pedigrees that that we sell. Like we just had a Paul Muchinsky baseball pinback collection that we've been selling. Well, it's not something that some baseball buttons have been graded by PSA, but it's it's not to the, a large extent. So this was basically sold 
as is raw, if you will. But we associated that name with it because this was a person that wrote a book on the subject. He was the foremost collector. We did that with the Richard Merkin baseball collection. Some of the cards did get a pedigree on their label if they were graded, but there was tons of other things that we sold that were, were not able to be encapsulated. So a pedigree is important, even if it's not a, a big name, a known name, if that person, as you alluded to earlier, took the time to put this together for a specific reason. So we like to call that out. We like to do write-ups on that feature collection section of our website when an auction goes online that shows that somebody took years and many times a lifetime to put this collection together so it becomes much more than just them putting items on a shelf. They become historians, right? They document this stuff. In many cases, they have one-of-a-kind items that they didn't have it, nobody else would. Mm -hmm. So pedigree to me is important from a collector standpoint because I know there was a lot that was put behind getting this collection assembled. I want to say you actually had one of, uh, was it Bill Byers, I believe? Uh, yeah, Joe, some, yeah. Yeah, I had some stuff. Yeah. I'm like, hey, because when I saw his name pop up, I'm like, I know him. I've talked to, I've talked mm -hmm. to him before, and I'm going, oh, he's getting rid of the GI Joe. In his case, they request it, and rightfully, sometimes we suggest it, and the, if the person is alive, they decide if they want to go with it. If they're not, we talk to the estate. Sometimes yeah. they don't want their name revealed. So it's really case-by-case -case basis, but I certainly like to be able to say we offer pedigree collections because of the reasons I stated. How do, how do you get, I'll use the, the Boba Fett example from the last one, the, the prototype, which there's only a handful of those in the, they exist. Is that just a random collector that you don't know that pops up and says, hey, I've got this, I'm ready to part with it, here you go, sell it for me? Or Yeah, it comes from all different ways, right? There will be known collectors uh, that come to us, and we already know what's in their collection, but they're ready to part with some or all. There are plenty of collections out there that we all know of, and everybody is waiting for the time that they come up for sale, so we always keep those on our radar. We have a number of pickers that scour the country, if not the world, for items okay. and then bring them to us. We will have a family that inherits, or a person inherits an estate, and they will find us and say, we need to liquidate this. And it can be somebody just finds one item in a, in a desk drawer, which just uh, happened this week with some baseball buttons. They found three great St. Louis Cardinals pinbacks that we had sold from the Paul Muchinsky collection a few times ago. They found our results, contacted us, sent them to us a variety of ways. And that's what is the most interesting part of this job is we really don't know what's going to happen on any given day. And good and bad. We could be offered the most incredible item and it seems like it's a lock and we're ready to do the deal and all of a sudden it falls apart for whatever reason. And at the same time, the most amazing item can be offered to us and the next thing here it is in front of us and it's in the next catalog. There's plenty of stuff that is in-house that we always work on for each auction, but every day anything could change if something else comes our way and then we decide what are we gonna do with this piece. What about like the uh, the Captain America shield, for instance? Was that coming straight straight from that movie? Was only a couple of years ago. I mean, is that like a Marvel Studios? Hey, we built six of these things, and we're, we're going to part with three of them. That's a long involved story. In that, it was actually in a charity auction. Okay. And, and the person that won it declined it for a specific reason, and so the people that had offered it originally didn't want to do that format again and they sent it to us. It did come straight from Marvel Studios. The prop master verified everything. When you talk props, you above and beyond comics and cards and autographs, you have to vet this stuff like crazy. And, and even then, sometimes you don't know. But this had ironclad provenance. It was a killer piece, and that's why it was the focus. It was the, the 
single item on the front cover of the catalog. We did yep. incredible promotion for it. We were at Baltimore Comic Con with it on display. So that was the kind of piece that every auction house wants. And actually, when we got it and posted online that we had it, there was some chatter, as it happens on social media these days. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but lots of people like to talk. I can't find uh, you on social media, actually. Me? You, <laughs> yeah. you, you won't. I, and, and even, you know, on, on Facebook, I've got to have a Facebook page because of Hakes. But that Facebook page is run by people at Hakes. I am not a social media person. I don't want to be a social media person. So anytime you see Alex Winter on social media, it's not me. It's someone else doing it for me. Oh, uh, I'll go on friend them then. <laughs> yeah. so, anyway. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so as soon as we got this, there was chatter and they said, it should bring this, but Hakes isn't really, is, is the place that I know for props, so on and so forth. And, and I defended ourselves and said, wrong. Again, we've been doing this longer than anybody. If you have the right piece, they will come. And we did the right promotion, and we did, and we got a record price for it. So again, that was one that was exciting to get. We certainly had a, a price in mind that exceeded even that expectation. The consigner was thrilled. Winnie Binner was thrilled. So that was a win-win for, for everyone. But those pieces are few and far between. A $260,000 item like that doesn't appear every day, unfortunately. I would love it to right. by, by, by 10 or more, and that would make the catalog much easier to put together. Yeah. I just wondered if that would start getting, because I actually know, I, I don't, I, I use the term no. It's somebody I am familiar with that I have gotten uh, television like school and props from because they worked on the production studio in Canada and were able to like, hey, they shut this stuff down. So we gathered that up that, that you would, particularly with Captain America, because that's awesome. Matter of fact, prior to us recording this, I've been saying, hey, I'm talking to Alex Winter. They sold this and that made some people go, oh, that's awesome because it's an attention getter. It's yeah. absolutely an attention getter to sit there and go, okay, you've done this with them. Now you're going to go get the new Batman movie and you're going to sell the Batman. They won't sell the Batman. I'm using it as an example. To start getting formalized relationships with some of those guys because sure. they're ready to shut down production on popular items And because there's a whole subculture of the movie prop stuff. And I, to me, I think comic books are dying, if not dead. And the stuff, the way pop culture is, has moved to movie and television shows and things of that nature you're going to see maybe a wider appeal for people wanting pieces of those shows and pieces of those movies. Sure. That's my yeah. own. And, and just just from a comic guy, you know, comics aren't dead. Comic, comics sell less than they used to in many cases. But yeah. they're still a viable community, and that's supported by primarily comic cons, right? So yeah. you, want to, you want to get something signed, you hand them a digital something, you hand them air, oh, or I you hand a, a comic book. So, uh, yes, the, the heyday of when we had million-dollar or million print-run comic books yeah. for every title lesser uh extent but but comics are still comics are what's driving everything you don't have a Batman or a daredevil tv show without the origin exactly you know? so, yeah and, and collectors look there are plenty of people you didn't buy that comic off the rack as a kid but you wanted that issue so there are plenty of collectors that know of comics now and are gravitating and, and going back and collecting issues from the past because of the importance. That's where the character started, or they like the storyline, or so on and so forth. Comics are comics are very important to the landscape of pop pop culture, past, present, and future. No, and I've always said everybody's got their thing. Somebody listening to this going, "Oh, you're crazy. You look like Superman." I guarantee you've got something in your life, whether you actually actively know it or not that you're collect you're interested in everybody's got their hobby with those things that they they accumulate knowledge or accumulate items with some of that yeah. stuff do you have trouble with stuff that comes in and you go ah oh, crap i don't want to i don't want to i want this one myself 
Uh, yeah, look, we stayed in the catalog. Employees can bid uh, if they want. We're all collectors. So, yes, there are things that I bid on. At this last auction, I won nothing. That's how robust the bidding was. I, I like some things. I, I let them go to somebody else. I put it, and I bid in other auction houses, and I, I go on eBay. And, again, I, I don't have a room with stuff like this, just... <laughs> uh, you know, so, so I'm actively always seeking things out, but yeah, it, the other, the one good thing is that I don't have to own everything across my path because for a short time I did, right? It's in front of me. I helped catalog it or the shield. I saw it. I got to hold it. We, we took it to the comic con. So that's also the beauty of this job is that while you can physically obtain these items and add to your collection, if not for a brief period, they were in your life. So it's, it's cool just to think of all the things that I've seen at Hakes over the years. It's just an unbelievable amount of stuff. It's it, A museum has passed before my eyes over 37 <laughs> years here. Oh, I know. I have no doubt. And how, when you're talking about switching back, this is sometimes circular conversations to a degree, talking about when you get one of those one-off items and you're sitting there, you know, looking at your team of experts that kind of work there that specialize in something, when you go, how do you start putting in a, somebody comes in, I want to sell this, we think it's going to go within this range. How do you start identifying that when you're dealing with one-offs or something that's 60 years old and nobody's seen it in 30 years? Very difficult. And some auction houses give no estimates. Some give a price plus, so a thousand up. We've always been about very structured. Here, Here's a number range. And we use comps. We use our past sales. We use other sales. We use all kinds of different factors. But when it comes to those one-of-a-kind pieces, there have been a few that we put an open estimate on because it just was really that unknown. I saw that once. I can't remember what it was. I do remember that. Martin Luther King document we did, one of the Babe Ruth, there's not a couple of the Babe Ruth buttons that have never sold. So we did, but for the most part, we try to put some kind of range on it. And that's an educated guess. There are plenty of things that sell well above that, as we saw again, go back to Star Wars. Hate to keep going back to Star Wars, but that's a case in point this time that so many things went above estimate. And a lot of that was even apples to apples. Sometimes it's apples to oranges, sometimes it's apples to donuts. It's such, such a wide range that it is hard to uh, do that, but we feel it's important to put that out there, just give some kind of idea of what we think the value is. Ultimately, it is up to the bidders to decide. So, uh, there's again, there's no right or wrong to any of this. It's just what works for each auction house, and so we've always done estimates and tried to hit the, the market as best we can. Do you ever get where, imagine tracking other auction houses and stuff like that? Do you ever see something you're like, man, I'd like to get one of those over here and try to sell it myself and see what it goes for? Do you oh, have for sure, every day. Yeah. Look, <laughs> I take everything in the heart. Every time I see an item at another auction house that I think we could do as good or better, I don't like that. Okay? <laughs> so, yes, I'm in the, again, in this business, in the state with things, you've got to watch what's going on everywhere. So all of us here that handle items and consignment managers and so forth, we all watch every auction. We've got to keep our finger on the pulse. And many times that we are in the running with an item for another auction house, and it goes there. And, again, that doesn't make me happy because I want it all. You know? Do you got a, do you have a, a grail item that you're like, man, I'd like to get my hands on one of these and we, have it come through here? We've never offered an action one. I would like to, we had a Detective 27 a few years ago. I would like a nice copy of Action One. That would just be cool because, um, but there's so much so, artwork that I love, and there's so many. I could go on for five days of what I'd like to. I'd like to offer Mickey Mantle rookie. We've never done. I, I'd okay. like to offer some of the, the key pieces. And the good thing with that is, again, with so much competition in the auction world, you got to prove what you can do to get the item. So when we right. don't have the item, sometimes people aren't sure about trying it with us. But 
you look at some of the things that we have sold for Captain America's shield, we had a few props here and there, never, never anything of that caliber, and we shattered all our expectations. So if we get it, we're going to do a good job with it. Cool. Yeah, funny story. You talk about Action 1, and he's talking about Action 1 is the first appearance of Superman. So there was another site that I sometimes track, but they annoy me with way too many emails, so I don't pay attention to them much anymore. I wouldn't know who you're talking about. Yeah, it's not you guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they actually, I laugh at this because I actually put a bid on it to see what would happen. And I forgot what it went for. Somebody had taken an Action Comics one that was in very bad shape and started selling them by the page, mm-hmm. which is common. I'd seen that before. The thing that I had not seen, though, then this is the first time, they had taken the removed staples and the trimmings from where they cleaned up the edges and stuck them in a baggie and said, we're selling what I called a bag of trash, essentially, from Action Comics number one. And the opening bid was 20 bucks or something like that. I, I know I put 20 bucks in or 30 bucks in. I'm just because it was stupid. It went for several hundreds of dollars. And it was you're talking it was legitimately rusted out staples and some essentially paper trimmings that somebody had cut. And that may be the weirdest thing I've seen related to that. You triggered that. But again, somebody wanted it, right? Somebody wanted it for hundreds of dollars. Got into this industry. One of the first things I did was I would go through at that time, there were lots of trade publications and I would go through all those and look at the want ads to get names to send catalogs to. And one guy said, I collect barbed wire. He collected 12 inch pieces of barbed wire. They all look the same to me. But to, again, to him, this was, so I thought, even as a collector, I thought it was unusual. But yes, he would think well, that's unusual that you want an action figure, right? So it's all relative to what you like, what you want. To me, I would rather have a full copy of Action 1 than just pieces. But again, maybe, I was trying to get a couple of the pages and then it went through the roof. I used to joke, when this all happened with the pages, because again, I get it, but it's not for me. I wouldn't want a page from a, a comic. I would want the whole comic or, or nothing at all. But I joked at that, would someone buy half of a Honus Wagner? Guess what? Not that long ago, someone bought a portion of a Honus Wagner for $400,000. So, yeah, (laughs) uh, these days, nothing surprises me. It's all fair game. Yeah, no, that's crazy. One last question just on the the bidding process and the time. Like most auction places, you get that, I would imagine, an initial surge of bids on the first day or so that your auction goes live. It goes very quiet until the last several hours. And you guys do real, roughly, what, a, a two-week opening to close period? Weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks, yeah. yeah. Three, uh, opening to close period. Is there a particular reason of uh, three weeks versus two or a month? or? I think it, it, a long time ago, before the Internet, we used to actually do four weeks. We cut that down to three. That just seemed like the right time period that once you go online, that's when you get everybody looking at your auction, not only bidders, but from a PR standpoint. So it gives us plenty of time to get our word out there and, and build things. But you're right. The first day, the first few days, lots of people come and bid. Some of them do exactly what you do. They put in a token bid just to see. Or they, we have plenty of people that, believe it or not, they don't even want to mess with this auction game. So they will say, here's my max bid. Put it in and walk away, and they don't have to think yep. about it again. So that happens. And then for a couple of weeks, bidding is it's back and forth. It can be lighter days, heavier days. It depends. But. Yes, then we come into those closing days, and I would say as much as 40% of our bidders in any given auction only bid on those days. They wait that long. Some of them 
also wait till the very final hour. So at 9 p.m. on, we usually have two closing dates for the main auctions. At 9 p.m. on a Tuesday and 9 p.m. on a Wednesday, we start a 20-minute clock on every item. And when 20 minutes pass with no bids, those items close. So it ends in stages, 920 and, and so on and so forth. Takes us a couple hours past that till the final item closes. A lot of people wait till 919 to put their bid in because they have the eBay snipe mentality. All that does for us is it starts it over for another 20 minutes. So there's no, that happened with the Boba Fett this time. Uh, it was at 100,000 going into the last minute. And we thought maybe that's where it's going to end. Then a little bidding war happened. And, but these guys were going back and forth and waiting 20 minutes, maybe hoping another would fall asleep. I don't know, but nobody did. It, it just it delayed the auction as long as it's been for quite some time. And that's fine because it's a $200,000 item in the end. But yeah, so the, the last day is really when the most action happened, and especially in that last hour. So you can see things just go crazy that we're sitting there for so long. Do you sit there and watch, so on closing days or like you and the team sitting around the computers and well, you've got your, you got your like hot button items. You're like, I really want to see where this goes and what happens where you're sure. like watching it in real time. We're watching it in real time. <laughs> and we have to, because we're not only taking internet bids, we have plenty of people to still call on the phone. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, we do. And, and we also have a callback service. So if you are outbid, we will call you back. So we've got to monitor all the bids that are coming in just for those reasons. So that's another reason why we have 20 minutes restart because we're not just taking bids on the internet it's not ending one at a time we have other variables we have to factor in and it also gives the uh, bidder time to think about it so maybe they did put their bid in and walk away but now they see it has exceeded that price and they'll think about it and again consigners like the fact that we don't close so quickly and and definitively so that they have a chance to get the most for their item. And again, it's fair for the, some bidders may not like that it starts over again for 20 minutes, but hey, <laughs> this is an auction and it's fair for every bidder to yeah. have every opportunity to, to get their bid in. And some do, some think about it and we'll come back in. And again, the 20 minute clock, it's not like it extends it forever. Usually 10, 30, 11, after starting at nine, the auction is over. 11, 30, this last time it was ready after midnight, that's long, but the longest it's gone in a while, but it's not like it keeps happening. It, in the very old days when we were just doing phone bids, it really would go 24 hours plus continuously because we have an East Coast bid, West Coast bid, overseas bid, starts over again. So we would be there 24 hours. At that point, we had a 10-minute um, clock between items, and it would take 26, 28 hours sometimes to have it finally wind down. No, that's and I like the twenty minutes because going back to that eBay snipe thing where somebody gets something in there at the last second as it just ends and and then you get potential delays because I've been on some stuff where people are doing like the live auction like you're sitting there you're at legitimately auction off an item but there's a major lag where I see it I see something five minutes before you do or not five minutes but ten seconds before oh. you and it made the gigantic difference and, yeah. and so having that clock. I think also makes it, like I said, it's fair on all parties. And again, I, I warn anybody listening to bids with us, the longer you wait, the more chance there is some type of technical issue too, right? Yeah. So since it is no sniping and you won't get in there, don't take a chance and wait till last second because anything could happen. So I'm not saying bid on the first day if you don't want, but that last day, be a little more proactive and don't wait so long to put the bids in because... A lockup could happen. Anything could happen on your end, our end, with computers, and and then what? And that's why we have so many phone bidders. There are people that still don't trust technology. And Alex told me leading up to this, he goes, 
I don't do technology. <laughs> I don't do I don't do high to, to me high tech is a nice turntable. So I don't want to say I don't like technology, but with this current thing and it's that's not my bag. I've got a staff that can handle it. Again, social media, I've got a staff that can handle it, and that's all well and good, and, and I'll do my thing as well. That's awesome. Alex, I appreciate the time today. Normally what happens, I usually go, hey, where do they connect you with on social media? I'm not going to do that in this case, and I'm just going to say everybody needs to go to Hicks.com. How's that sound? Simple, simple for me. Love it. Hicks.com. I'll, I'll make sure the link's in the, in the show notes. And look, and we the, do do. We have Facebook. We have yeah. Twitter. We have Instagram. The company does, yes. The company does, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but me personally, no. Send me a letter. That's how I do it. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Again, appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it.